two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thank you once again, Rebecca, and welcome to the next episode of Words and Movies. I'm your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. And today we're beginning a series which we're calling Around the World, because we're taking looks at movies from other parts of the country besides the U.S. And we're starting by going to Mexico, uh, talking about a director we have talked about before, Alfonso. Quran, but this time we're going to focus on the two best movies he did in Mexico since he is from Mexico. And those movies are, for me, from the year 2001, although it was released in the U.S. in 2002, Itu Mama Tambian, which also translates to And Your Mother Too, which means just what you think it means, and from 2018, Roma. Now, both of these movies he also had a hand in writing uh he co-wrote the script for Ituma Matambian and wrote the script on his own for Roma both of these movies are period pieces and while bo- both of these movies are genre pieces in a sense um in addition to being a coming of age story Ituma Matambian is also a teenage sex comedy while Roma in addition to also being a coming-of-age story is a family drama, but there's a lot more going on in both than just the sex comedy and the family drama, and we're going to get into all that, but for now, Claude is going to give us the plot description for Itumama Tambian. Yes, indeed. And let me start by saying that this is probably one of the horniest films you have ever asked me to write about. Um, I'm also going to note that this film does have narration in it, in which the narrator may provide some information about characters and events of the film, and sometimes about events that don't have a lot to do so much with the events of the film as much as some of the things that we see here and there. But that said, we start with two young men. One of them is Julio, who's played by uh, Gail Garcia Bernal, who comes from a left-leaning middle-class family, and then there's Tenoch, played by Diego Luna. Uh, his father is a high-ranking political official. And we open with scenes of each boy having sex with his girlfriend one last time before the girls leave on a trip to Italy. And without their girlfriends around, the boys quickly get pretty bored. They attend a wedding where they meet Luisa, who's played by Maribel Verdu. Uh, she is the Spanish wife of Tenoch's uh, cousin, Yano. Uh, Luisa is at least 10 years older than they are, but she's still very attractive. They try to impress her with talk of a secluded beach called La Boca del Cielo, Heaven's Mouth. She politely turns down their invitation to go there with them, but not long after that, Yano places a very drunken phone call to Luisa, during which he confesses that he just had sex with another woman. Luisa appears to be shattered by the news, and she changes her mind about joining the boys on the beach trip. And it's at about this point that we learn they made up the beach's name. They get directions to a secluded beach in the area they'd identified. However, the directions are coming from a stoner friends of their named Saba, played by Andres Almeida. They have to bargain with Tenoch's sister to get the use of a car, and they pick up Luisa, driving through the poorer rural sections of Mexico. They spend the time by talking about their relationships and their sexual experiences, and the boys are mostly boasting about their exploits, which turn out to be not much, and Luisa is speaking in more uh, careful terms about Yano and of her first love, 
who died in an accident when they were 17 years old. At their first overnight stop, they make plans to creep on Luisa's room and spy on her in hopes of seeing her in the nude, but they bail out when they spot her, and it turns out she's crying. During their next overnight stop, the tel uh, she telephones Yano, leaving a kind of goodbye note on his answering machine. Tenoch goes to her motel room looking for shampoo, but he finds her crying again. She seduces him, and he has sex with her, although it should be noted that the sex part went by pretty quickly. Uh, Julio sees this from the open doorway, and he angrily tells Tenoch that he's had sex with his girlfriend, and that starts an argument that goes on for the better part of the night. The next day, Luisa senses that there's tension between the two boys, and she thinks that she's the cause. So, she tries to even the score by having sex with Julio, with similar results. In fact, according to IMDb, somebody timed them, and they both lasted exactly the same amount of time. In the car the next day, Tenoch reveals he had sex with Julio's girlfriend. The boys begin to fight again until Luisa bails out of the car and starts walking. Among other things, she tells them that they should just have sex with each other and get it over with. She also refuses to get in the car until the boys agree to her rules, some of which include her never having sex with them again, and that she plans to sunbathe in the nude and they can't be gawking at her while she does so. By accident, they find an isolated beach, which coincidentally is called Boca del Cielo, Heaven's Mouth. They begin to relax and enjoy the beach and the company of a local family. In the nearby village, Luisa makes a final phone call to Yano, bidding him an affectionate but final farewell. She begins to break down crying yet again in the phone booth. About two dozen pigs have escaped a nearby farm and they have trashed the beachfront campsite, so one of the locals named Chewy offers to let them stay at a place nearby which has electricity and running water, although we're told it's not hot water. That evening, the three of them drink a lot, and they begin to joke about their sexual transgressions, and it's here that we learn that the two boys have frequently had sex with the same women, specifically their girlfriends and Luisa. Ito mama tambien, Julio jests to Tenoch, and your mama too. Luisa gets up and asks the boys to give her a random number and letter. She punches this into the jukebox and begins to dance to the beat. She pulls the boys to the dance floor, and the three of them dance together sensually, then head for their rooms. They begin to undress and grope each other drunkenly, with both boys focusing their attentions on Luisa, but as she kneels and stimulates them both, they begin to kiss each other passionately. The next morning, Luisa gets up early. She leaves the boys to wake up together naked, and when they do, they immediately turn away from each other, and now they're just want to get home, especially in as much as Tenoch has to get the car back to his sister. The narrator explains that they returned quietly and uneventfully, but they also hardly said a word to each other the, the, the entire way. Luisa, on the other hand, stayed behind to explore the beaches. The narrator also tells us that the boys' girlfriends broke up with them, they started dating other girls, and they stopped seeing each other. We jump to a year later. It is 2000. That's the year that the international, uh, institutional rather, Revolutionary Party lost the first election in seven 71 years. Julio and Tenoch have bumped into each other by chance, and because it's more awkward not to spend some time together than to spend some time together, we see them having a cup of coffee together in a diner, during which they catch up on each other's lives and news of their friends. Tenoch informs Julio that Luisa died of cancer about a month after their trip. He reveals that she knew she was sick the whole time that the three were together. Tenoch then excuses himself, saying he has an appointment, and we're told that they never see each other again. Okay, so when we talked about Children of Men, I mentioned that Quran 
uh, came to Hollywood in the 90s, and in addition to directing a episode of a long-forgotten and should be better remembered Showtime anthology noir series called Fallen Angels, where basically a number of directors adapted short stories for a short noir film. He also directed two high-profile adaptations, the first one being from 1995, A Little Princess, which had been filmed a couple times before, most notably with Shirley Temple in the 1930s. But this movie, despite the fact that it was very well-received by critics, suffered from the if it isn't Disney, we're not going to see it. Family audience of the 90s, unfortunately, which actually stuck around for another decade until gladly or finally other movies started to break the monopoly of Disney movies on the family audience. And then in 1998, he directed a modern-day version of Great Expectation, which received mixed reviews and also saw Quaran getting a lot of studio interference. And as I mentioned when we talked about Children of Men, while there are some good performances here from Ethan Hawke as the modern-day version of Pip is the main character in Great Expectations mm-hmm. and Gwyneth Paltrow among others it also had a very unappetizing production design specifically a theme color of puke green <laughs> which is a real turnoff. So after that experience, Quran decided to go back to Mexico and recharge his batteries, so to speak. Now, the idea of Itumamatambian, by the way, he co-wrote this movie with his brother Carlos, was a movie he actually had in the early 90s, but he decided to put it on hold and wait for a while to make it. And it's a good thing, in my opinion, Opinion, that he waited to make this because the decade later of coming back to it mean that it's even though it's a teenage sex comedy it comes from a more mature perspective i think we're gonna get into that in a little bit but whereas when he was young if he made it when he was younger it might have seemed like he was completely celebrating the exploits of his two teenage heroes here in the version that he ended up making he views them with a more detached eye which is one of the reasons i think the movie works so well what do you think claude i think you're right in that respect I think the other thing is that in waiting the 10 years, and this is just kind of serendipity, um, from going from the early 90s to the early 2000s, you do have that extra political activity that that took place and, and which kind of informs the ending of the film a little bit. And so what what happens there is that it actually gives some of the scenes earlier in the film, and I'm thinking specifically about the wedding uh, scene, just a little bit more depth to it because it was considered like a surprise that the, that the president was showing up to this thing but now we kind of get the feeling that 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 
there must have been a reason that the president was there. Well, now he's kind of like currying favor with with people that he might not otherwise be doing. And and so it wound up being kind of interesting because, you know, even though this this guy is is as I mentioned before, is like a high-powered political person, one of the first things we see in that wedding scene is the two boys just looking around and counting the bodyguards that are in the room and i think they came up with like it was i think i want to say a dozen but i think it was more than that um but the fact is that that basically troubles are brewing so people have bodyguards the president is at this event that he wouldn't ordinarily be at you know something's happening and it just gives the whole story itself just a little bit of extra depth so yeah it does work out on on multiple levels right now let's go back to the politics here a bit obviously the main part, as you mentioned, is the fact that the ruling party in Mexico, which had been ruling for 71 years, by the end of the movie is no longer in power. And the party headed by Vincente Fox, who became Mexico's new president in 2000 and became a close, well, political friend anyway, of President George W. Bush during his time in office actually actually uh, you know, does add a certain political tension to the movie. But even aside from that, you do get to see some other political things going on, specifically the class differences. Mm-hmm that are going on between Tanoche and Julio. The fact that Julio's family, while middle class, is not quite in the same league as Tanoche's family. So you get the sense that despite the fact that these guys claim to be best friends or whatever, that their friendship is basically a house of cards that could topple over any moment. And while it's the sex part, of course, that does them in ultimately in the long run, it could have been anything else. Yeah, I, 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 I can see that. But, you know, this is also, you know, you, you've, got, you've got friends when you're younger. You grow up with people. You spend a lot of time together. And, you know, the fact is, as you get to this point in your life, you are going to drift apart for, for, for better or for worse. And sometimes it's because, you know, you went to this college and your friend went to that college and, you know, that kind of thing. And you have a hard time reconnecting with one another. You know, in this case, these guys had a little bit of a coming of age event over that, su- you know, during that summer where they met up with Lisa, they did the road trip, there was all kinds of sex going on. And their relationship exploded instead of in, instead of just kind of dwindling away. Um, you know, so so it I think it's something that would have happened anyway. You know, this is but I think that that, that this particular series of events just kind of brought the differences between them into a little bit of sharp relief. Right. And that's one of the ways that this movie is very different Mm. from an American teenage sex comedy. I mean, when you think about the uh, most famous teenage sex comedies that had come out around this time, 
time, that would be, of course, the American Pie movie, which I have to say I have not seen all the way through, part of that being because I am not a fan of a lot of the actors who are in this, in those movies. But clearly, the emphasis on the American Pie movies and similar American movies that I have actually seen is, let's just put it, it's they're done on a strictly purient, prurient level. Mm-hmm. You know, you're invited to get off, basically, on the woman in the movie, and also you're supposed to laugh at all the exploits going on, but it doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of difference in everyone's lives. I mean, in the American Pie movies and all the sequels, you know, a couple characters have gotten together and fallen in love and marry in one of them, because I think one of the movies is called American Wedding, but it's still done at the same level as the first one, whereas in this movie, even though there is a lot of sex going on, both shown and talked about, the sex is treated very seriously. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not a, um, oh, a bunch of uh, guys giggling at breasts or a bunch of teenage girls giggling at someone's penis. It's done in a very serious manner. And that's why when the friendship between the two boys implodes, when they have sex with each other, you're not surprised either. Because again, this is something that something serious that happened to both of them and as much as they may talk a good game they're not mature enough to handle something like this yeah i think you're right there's a big difference between the americans and and in this case the mexicans when it comes to films like this because you know the other thing is you know in in the united states we're casting 22 and 23 year olds as teenagers all right in this particular film I had a couple of moments where I'm like, how old are these guys anyway? At first, I'm thinking they're teenagers, and then I see they're drinking, and they're smoking, and da-da-da-da-da. I was like, well, maybe they're a little bit older, and they're young adults. And then it comes back to, well, they're getting ready to go to school and do this. And I'm like, okay, that brings them back into like late teenage years. And I guess that's really where they are, and the rules are different as far as you know, drinking and smoking, because no- nobody seems to care one way or the other. And and so you've, you've, you've got that. And then, as you say... I think I think Quaron actually turns that trope on its head as far as, you know, giggling over, you know, naked women when we get that scene where they're going to do that and they're all he 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 we're going to go peek in on Louisa and it turns out she is completely breaking down in this rather weird looking hotel room that she's in and they and they and they just bail out on the idea. It's like, "No, we can't we can't do this." And they just leave. And even later on when she seduces them, she is fully dressed at first and the boys are the uh, are well, at least the first time around it, it's it's the boy who's undressed and and he's just wearing a towel and she's like lose the towel you know and and so you know there there are certain expectations going on there and they get turned over completely right well as it happens luna and bernal were both in their early 20s mm-hmm. playing teenagers but again the point that you make still stands that you know were invited to see these 
to as being the emotionally stunted boys, emphasis on boys, that they really are. Now, another way that the movie plays with this idea of uh, two teenagers getting involved with an older woman, which has been in American teenage sex comedies before. Sure. Um, the one that, you know, there were quite a few of them made during the 80s, for example. Um, maybe... The one that was marginally the best was one called The Losing It with uh, Tom Cruise in one of his early roles and Shelley Long. But in none of those movies was the woman given the dignity and the agency. Three yeah, agency, yes. And the three dimension that she's given here. You know, she is clearly, and Louisa, that is, is clearly in charge the entire way. I mean, she fools them into thinking that they're in charge, you know, by the way that she you know, allows them to talk about their rules, quote-unquote, mm -hmm. about what they're going to be doing. And then when she finally gets fed up with the two of them, she makes her own rules, and it's clear that even when she's dancing with them or having sex with them, she's the one in charge. And the fact that although the two of them are not terrible people by any means, I mean, they do sort of pay attention to things that are going on. You know, when they come to the beach and come across that family, they do help when they can. But she is the one who is paying most attention attention to everyone else you know the fact that she's playing with the child of that family they meet tells you a lot about her right there mm -hmm. so this is not the type of character that you would see given full dimension and as you say agency in an American version of this story. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's talk a little about the influences here. Uh, obviously, the Mexican, what's going on, what was going on in uh, Mexico at the time is a big influence, but Quran was also influenced by the French New Wave. Um, that was part of the point of the narration. He's taken that as he admitted in the interview that I saw of him on the Criterion edition of this movie, he admitted that he stole the narration from Godard, <laughs> specifically from masculine feminine, though it's also used the way that the narration used, is used in this movie is also taken from Band of Outsiders. And then there's a rather obscure French New Wave film that 
that is available on YouTube only, as far as I know, from 1962, called Adieu Filipina, which was directed by Jacques Rosier, um, not one of the well-known members of the French New Wave, although he apparently directed a couple movies that were from that time that were considered important. But that movie also had a road trip, a love triangle, a trip to the beach, and then also a dance scene near the end. Now, other than that, there's mostly a superficial resemblance to the move to uh, Itumama Tambian, but you can definitely see a little of that influence there. Um, now, another one of the stylistic parts of the movie, which we mentioned when we talked about Children of Men, is Quran uses a lot of long takes. Yeah. Not steady cam necessarily. He had a steady cam operator ready to go, but decided not to use it. But nonetheless, a lot of takes where he not only holds the camera on what's going on, but also moves the camera around a lot. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not done in quite the same manner as Children of Men. You know, there are no major set pieces here, with the exception of the dance scene and the sex scene. But nonetheless, the use of the camera, and by the way, uh, once again, the cameraman was Emmanuel Lubezki, also known as Chivo, um, but the use of the camera um, moving around and also the way that everything's lit in natural light gives this movie a more documentary feel, which is another way that this distinguishes itself from an American teenage sex comedy. Yeah, it, it, it does. And, and I presume when you're talking about the sex scene, because you, you really can't do that with this particular film, you are referring to when she seduces Tenoch, because that um, was a pretty long single take kind of scene. Well, that one was as well, yes. But I was thinking more of the scene between the three of them the when Tanosh okay. and uh, Julio end up kissing each All other. Right, fair enough. And and that that last scene, the dan what you're calling the dance scene, it, it starts with them. It's like this kind of I don't know indoor outdoor bar kind of kind of location, and I'm I'm not really sure what it is. And the three of them are sitting at a picnic table essentially. This is one continue. It's a seven minute continuous take it's enormously long i actually went back and like looked at the little timer on my on my on my uh on the on the tv screen to see what like how long is this because it was like one of those things like i'm usually kind of wise to to long takes because i'm such a fan of them and I, I just had this moment. I was like, oh my gosh, we've been in this same take forever. And so I backed up and I like marked the time signatures and that kind of thing. And said, this is, wow, this is huge because it starts on them. And then, you know, they, they, they talk for several minutes before Louisa gets up 
and she goes over to the jukebox and it follows her to the jukebox and then she punches in the numbers and the music starts and I love 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 this particular part where she turns around and she starts dancing and she is looking directly into that lens right at you the viewer and you are like wondering what is going to happen now and it slowly follows her back okay so it stays in kind of tight on her and Quaron doesn't do this very often. So where you've got just this one shot of one person in the scene and follows her as she works her way back to the table and then the shot widens out again to take in the other two boys as the three of them start dancing together. It's just a fantastically executed scene. And, and, and oh, I can't say enough good stuff about that one. Yeah, no, that is definitely one of the major high points of the movie. So let's talk about the performances here. Now, Diego Luna and Gail Garcia Bernal, of course, have both become major uh, stars or at least well-known actors since this at and they've also, before and since this movie came out, have been best friends as well. At the time the movie was made, Bernal was pretty much an unknown, whereas Luna had been well-known, at least in Mexico, thanks to a soap opera that he had done. Actually, I want to take that back about Bernal. He did appear in Amores Peros, which was made by another one of the three amigos, Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu, and that was his first major movie. But Luna, as I mentioned, was the one that was most well-known at the time. He also appeared, by the way, in a very good movie from 2000 called Before Night Falls, which I'm going to mention again in a later episode. But he was on a telenova called La Vida en el Espejo. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is Quran was reluctant to cast Luna in this because of that. He wanted folks that weren't well known to audiences so that you would be projecting your own experiences on the characters instead of saying, hey, wait, is isn't it that guy who was in that Talanova? And it was Bernal who ended up um, convincing Quran to cast Luna in the movie because he felt that their friendship uh, off screen would help make people convinced about the character's friendship on screen. And then also he thought that the fact that they were friends on screen would help uh, make them able to dive into each of their characters and really make the rupture or explosion, as you put it, in their friendship all the more convincing. And I think that Bernal was right in 
insisting that Luna be cast in this role because I think you do get a sense of that bond, which is helped by the fact that except for that very last sequence in the restaurant at the end, which was apparently the first thing shot, uh, most of the rest of the movie was shot in sequence, which again is uh, not something that happens very often for understandable reasons, but because it was shot in sequence and because the two of them you know were friends i think we do get a sense of the bond between the two of them as it starts out strong and then bends and then completely breaks by the end yeah it's definitely a very convincing relationship that the two of them have and i and there are a few times when basically you know you're, you're watching and of course it's caption because you know we're we're english speaking here and but but the two of them are going back and forth so fast that the captions are basically not keeping up with them and so i wouldn't be remarkably surprised to learn that a lot of the banter between the two of them in some of those earlier scenes was was just ad lib well apparently there was according to the imdb trivia page there were a few scenes that were improvised uh most notably the um scene at the beach bar the dance sequence you know what they did was they got drunk and they danced and then they um then they and then also verdu you know improvised that entire scene and then quran filmed that but he said that he wasn't gonna print it he told the actors that they should remember what they did before remember the sensations and relive it and they ended up doing that and that's what ended up appearing in the movie and that scene does give the feel of something improvised which is another reason why in my opinion it works so well and let's also talk about uh verdu here now she is actually a spanish actress she's not from mexico and most american viewers would probably remember her from playing who i would say is would argue is the real hero in the movie Pan's Labyrinth made by the third of the three amigos, Guillermo del Toro. Um, one of probably his most famous Spanish language movie that he's made. She plays the housekeeper to the bad guy in the movie. He's played by Sergio Lopez, uh, who is in reality helping out the rebel that are in the movie. But I also first encountered her in the movie Belle Pope, which won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, as it was called in those days, in 1993. And that is another sex comedy, which has a lot more going on underneath, where she plays one of four sisters. Um, one of the other sisters, played by Ariadne Gill, I think is how you pronounce her name, also is in Pan's Labyrinth. And it was an early appearance by Penelope Cruz as another of the sisters who all end up sleeping with this one guy. And she 
and Verdun in this movie again. I mean, obviously she is very good looking, but you also are convinced by her maturity and by the fact that she is connected to the world in a way that the other two characters here aren't. And you also, even when you don't see the scenes of her breaking down and crying, you get the sadness that is going on underneath her character, even when she's putting on this brave face to everyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she is. And and, and, and and it makes sense that they would hire a Spanish actress since Luisa is supposed to be from Spain. And I imagine, again, this would have to take somebody with some fluency here. One would probably notice that she has a little bit more of a Castilian sound to her Spanish than Mexican, because there is a slight difference between the two. It's not like they can't understand one another the way different versions of Chinese happen. But um, but I, I'd be willing to bet that there's an accent there and that they needed it. And that also underlines the idea of her being, as you say, more connected to the world at large, because she has seen more of the world at large. She has been to more of the world at large. She's talked about, in during the film, like going to these various places, like, you know, going with her boyfriend to France and, and, and you know, being down on the beach with him and that, that sort of thing. So, yeah, you know, this is somebody who has been around, and chances are, has also had to fend off her, you know, her her own um her own uh uh passel of teenagers who are trying to impress and hit on her in one way or the other, where she has to say, you know, no, thank you, I'm married, go away, leave me alone, as she does at first with these two. Right now, um, getting back to Bernal and Luna for a second, I have to admit. I haven't always been a fan of Bernal. Um, you know, in this movie, his character, of course, like most other teenage boys, is self-absorbed, so it fits. But I found that in other roles in his career, and I'm thinking specifically in a movie he did with another filmmaker we're going to be talking about later in the series, uh, Pedro Almodovar, the movie Bad education his character was completely self-involved and that was a real turnoff to me but he does well in this movie and luna who i have liked as far as an actor goes i just haven't always liked the movies that he's been in <laughs> but he's also very good here as well and also good is the one person that we don't really that we don't get to see here at all Daniel Gimenez Cacho, who is the voice of the narrator. Obviously, mm -hmm. the narrator, as far as the character goes, doesn't have a lot of nuance, but he makes sure that whenever he delivers that narration, it's done in an interesting way rather than uh, this total flat monotone thing you know we are compelled by the narration not just by what he's telling us but by how he's telling us yeah and it's it's kind of interesting in that this is a narrator who remains anonymous throughout the film because you know typically when things like this happen you think at some point that the narrator if they haven't been identified right away is going to there's going to be some kind of a reveal toward the end you know and so it wouldn't even be that 
uh, Tenoch and Julio never see each other again. It would be something like Tenoch and I never saw each other. It, you don't get that. You know, he remains this this omniscient person throughout the film. But that also goes a little bit, I think, toward um, toward, toward Coron's basic shooting style in this and in Roma. I don't want to get into it too deeply now, but I think I think they're very related to one another in this respect. Well. Again, that's the influence of Godard, because mm-hmm. Godard was one of the first, if not the first, directors to do that in movies, have an omniscient narrator. There let, are other... Let, let me ask you this, though, because this is something that occurred to me, and, and like I don't have a deep experience with Godard, so maybe you can you can straighten me out on this. But one of the things I've noticed that is that when the narrator in this film speaks, okay, all the other audio goes completely silent. And in fact, you have a moment or two of silence sometimes before the narrator says something. And so you don't get any background noise. You don't get any, like, you know, it's not like the volume goes down and the narrator's voice takes precedence. It's like it goes completely silent. The narrator says his thing and then the sound comes back on again. And is that something that Godard did as well? Yes. Okay. Um, in uh, Band of Outsiders, I'm thinking in particular, um, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but there's a very famous no. scene um, where the three main characters characters are dancing the Madison. I did see God that knows. scene. <laughs> yeah, and that and it does do that in that scene that the music is playing and then it stops and then we hear the narration and then the narration stops and then the music comes back on. And speaking of the music, mm-hmm. most of the music in this movie is Mexican baby. music. Well, it's yeah, I was going to say it is diegetic, but most of it is music from Mexico. Mm-hmm. But there are a couple of American songs that are thrown in there. We've got Eagle-Eyed Cherries doing a cover of the Bee Gees song, To Love Somebody. And then also at one point in the movie, we hear uh, Frank Zappa's Watermelon in East Hay. Now, apparently that was a song that Zappa did not want to be have used anywhere any place, but when Quran showed this movie to Zappa's widow, she apparently was convinced to let them use the song in the movie. And I think the song plays over the end credits. Yes. But either way, I'm glad that she allowed um, Quran to use the song because I'm not always the biggest fan of Zappa, but the song does work very well and pretty much playing on the themes of what this movie was about. Yeah, it does. Uh, and they, they also, there's a reference to an American song and, and I, I, and, and their misunderstanding of the words. And it, it was the thing that led to, and I can't remember, it was the, the, but they basically had a name for themselves, the two boys. And it was based on one of them mishearing an American song and they tried to explain it. And I just couldn't quite figure out 
what song they were talking about. So, you know, that that kind of irritated me a little bit, frankly, but I get over it. Yeah, I remember that scene. I don't remember the song that they were talking about either. So um, do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap this up? Uh, no, I think I have exhausted my notes on this guy. Okay, so in part two, which follows immediately after this, we'll be talking about Roma. The Quran Roma, not Fellini's Roma, for those of you not paying attention. Yes, indeed. That's coming up immediately in your podcast feed, so stick around.